Well, a very pleasant good morning to all of you. It's good to be back, and it's good to have some a little bit of sunshine to ease us back into the Illinois winter. But uh, you guys had some nice weather while we were gone, so I uh, hate that we missed that, but can't complain too much. Um, just wanted to thank you to start off for letting us take the time to go down for the lectures that we were able to attend uh, last week. It's good to have uh, some opportunities to continue to learn and as a preacher, I'm realizing more and more that I covet those opportunities when I can listen to somebody else. Um, that is nice, <laughs> because uh, um, uh, while studying and preparing your own lessons is good, it's good for, uh, for me to be strengthened as well, and to, to be able to soak in the knowledge and the teaching of others, and I'm thankful, really thankful for, for that opportunity. Um, thank you, none of you, for saying, yeah, it'd be good to listen to, amen, it'd be good to listen to somebody besides you, so I appreciate that uh, right there. But uh, in going to those lectures, the theme of the week was on the book of Hebrews, which when I heard that, I thought, well, great, we just studied Hebrews. This would have been great like a year ago before I had to teach this and figure out what I thought about it. Well, man, that's just the the wrong timing. It's not really ideal. But then I realized maybe this could be a really good thing uh, because I kind of have what I think of the book of Hebrews in mind, and we've all studied it together, and then now I can hear what some other people think and maybe, maybe learn some more, broaden uh, my view uh, a little bit. And then it hit me, well, the book of Hebrews is where our theme for this year comes from, about drawing nearer. So, well, hey, we're not done with Hebrews, not at all, just, just when you thought we were done. We got a whole year of Hebrews-related lessons. So, uh, so anyway, it was, it was really good to go just for, for my own personal benefit, and I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to take the time off and do that, but, uh, but it was also good. Uh, helping me think about some things with regards to our theme for, for the year. So grateful for, for that chance. But what I want to do this morning is basically just share the uh, highlights of the bounty of the spiritual feast that I enjoyed sitting at the feet of good men uh, last week. And so my goal, I, you know, I could go through and preach every single sermon again, but it wouldn't be as good and it still won't be as good, But and you probably would get bored uh, as well. Um, but... What I do want to do this morning is give you the big picture, give you the highlights uh, of what, uh, what I learned this past week and uh, what I took away from the book of Hebrews and the message of the book of Hebrews. So, so that's the plan uh, for the sermon this morning, is to consider the message of Hebrews. And in doing that, of course, naturally, I want to give total credit to all the speakers at the lectureship that, that I attended and don't want to take credit for this at all. So uh, lest I plagiarize, this is not original material entirely, but... I have formed this into my own lesson, everything that I, that I heard this past week. So there's my disclaimer up front. Take it for what you will. Um, so I want to talk about the message of Hebrews this morning. And one thing that I was really made aware of, even more so that I knew, but was reminded of in a very powerful way, is that Hebrews is a very practical book. It'd be easy for us to think that Hebrews is not practical, because it relies so much on the Old Testament. You jump into it, and then it's talking about angels, and it's talking about uh, the Old Covenant and the sacrifices and that system and, and everything that, it, that, in, that was entailed in, in the Old Covenant. A lot of technicalities, a lot of legalities employed in Hebrews that the writer uses to make his argument. So we could think, this is not very practical. This is just kind of a high-level, theological, academic material that's really hard to digest but that's not the case. Hebrews is very, very practical. 
And so I hope to emphasize that this morning as we consider the message of the book of Hebrews, that this book has a message that we need, all of us need in our lives every single day. So here's how we're going to talk about the message of the book of Hebrews. I'll give you my three points right up front. First, we're going to talk about the audience of the book of Hebrews. Then we're going to talk about the backdrop of the book of Hebrews. And then finally, the message of the book of Hebrews. So if that sounds agreeable to all of you, let's jump in. Uh, The audience of Hebrews is interesting. If you would turn over with me to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, hopefully you already at least had Hebrews in mind, even if you're not there, so go ahead and flip over there. We'll be just in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and we'll start reading in just a second in verses 32 and 33, but what these verses are going to tell us is these are Christians who had struggled and suffered and were still suffering. Notice verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It seems like from what we read here and elsewhere in the book that their faith had caused them to struggle and suffer. It's one thing to struggle and suffer just because of life, but it's another thing altogether to suffer because you believe in Jesus. And say, well, if I didn't believe in Jesus, this wouldn't be happening to me. But it is because of my faith. That's what seems to be happening to these Christians. They suffered, but they suffered because of their faith in Jesus. And initially, the writer seems to say, they, they did well with that suffering. It seems like this had been going on for some time. He says in verse 32 about the former days. He talks about when you uh, were enlightened and then you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This has been going on for some time. And they did well with it uh, at first. Notice verse 34. We continue reading there. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they did well at first. But it seems that as time went on, and they continued to suffer, and that suffering didn't go away, they continued to struggle, uh, both with maybe just the things that life threw at them, but also things people were doing to them because of their faith that they lost that energy that they had at first. They lost that resolve. At first, they were like, yes, it's worth it. We have something better. We're going to endure whatever we have to. And now they're not doing quite so well. We can gather that from the encouragement in the next two verses. Picking up in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the writer seems to be concerned, not not just from these verses, but across the whole book. He seems to have a concern for them. He seems to actually be writing because these Christians aren't handling this suffering quite as well as they used to. Things have continued to be difficult in their lives. The suffering hasn't let up, and their lives never really got easier, it seems. It seems like maybe the thought of just letting go of their faith is starting to enter into their minds. They've been doing this long enough, and it hadn't gotten any easier, and they're starting to think, is this really worth it? Should I really be doing this? I mean, I know there's something better coming, but are we sure about that, and is it really worth it? That seems to be what the writer is addressing here. But the even harder part about this is that as much as they had suffered and were suffering, they were likely going to suffer and struggle even more. The writer's telling them uh, in this book that, yeah, you've suffered a lot. 
but it's not going to get better. If anything, it's going to get worse. He says in in verse 4 of chapter 12 that they haven't shed any blood yet. Nobody's been killed yet among these people for their faith. But the verse before that, chapter 12 and verse 3, seems to indicate that that was a very strong possibility for them in the future. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then in verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. The implication, that may be coming. And that's difficult. Having suffered the whole time you've been a Christian, and then this writer comes along and says, yeah, I know you've been suffering, but don't worry. It's going to get way worse. (laughs) Whoa. Seriously? That's hard. Somebody comes to you and says that to you. I mean, you, we all want hope, right? If we're, if we're going through something, that's what we all rely on. We rely on people who say, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. It's going to be all right. This guy says, it's going to get worse. <laughs> How is that supposed to, supposed to help? But that was the reality. That's just what they were going to experience. And I think for us, I think it's fair to say that it's hard for us to imagine truly what that was like for them. I mean, yeah, we struggle with things. I'm not arguing with that. But our struggles are not like their struggles. Even the plundering of property. These Christians had to deal with that. He says they dealt well with it, but they dealt with that. I mean, can you imagine somebody coming into your house and taking everything that's yours or or taking it and then burning your house down because you were a Christian? Really? How about somebody seizing your assets, using their power in the government to take everything that's in your bank account and run with it? Can we imagine that? I have a hard time. I have a hard time with that. But not even just the plundering of your property, though. He says, he implies, it's very possible you're going to have to shed your blood. And we know historically a lot of Christians did shed their blood. They died for their faith. People were being killed because they were Christians, taken out in the street and murdered. Can you imagine if someone came in this morning, dragged, started dragging people out of here and killing them right here in the parking lot? It's hard to imagine. And that's what was happening to the early Christians. But the bottom line is these people really did suffer greatly. And so they were thinking of giving up. And we can understand that. If that's what's happening to you, I think we would sympathize with that. Yeah, maybe. Are you sure it's worth it? You'd want to make sure. But despite how greatly they suffered and were going to suffer, the author is going to make the argument that they simply cannot give up. That they should not give up and that it is not worth it to give up no matter how much they do suffer. And so as we consider the argument that he makes, that brings us to the backdrop of Hebrews. And where does the author go to try to help them with the suffering they're experiencing? We'll continue to experience. Does he go and just say, pat on the back, it's going to be okay? No, he says, let me pull out a legal argument from the Old Testament. Really? That's what's going to bring us comfort? Well, yes. Yes, it is. So he uses the Old Testament to help encourage them and convince them that they need to endure this suffering. 
Hebrews draws heavily on the Old Covenant, but it draws specifically on what was not possible through it. The earlier parts of the book demonstrate Jesus' superiority over all that the Old Covenant provided and all that it involved. And then when we get to chapter 11, we are reminded of people who had faith in God, some of the most noteworthy among God's people of all time, people who are even shadows of Christ himself under the Old Covenant. And those people, incredible. I mean, you, you got Abraham mentioned all over this. A lot of these were incredible people and had amazing relationships with God, talked directly with God. And yet, verses 37 through 39 of chapter 11 reveal to us that while the law they had was good, they were lacking something better that was to come. Read with me in verse 37 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. Talking about these people who had this faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But here's the key in verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They were lacking something. Something lay ahead of them that was better. It doesn't mean the law was bad or wrong, but something better was coming. And we can see that when we move on to chapter 12, we read verses 18 through 21. Uh, he's talking about how these Christians have not come to what previously existed under the Old Covenant. Verse 18, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further be messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses is the guy who had the boldness to go and say, God, I want, I want more. I want to see your face. And yet even this makes him, Moses, tremble with fear. God had appeared to him so many times, burning bush, talked to him all, all the way through the Exodus and, and, and the, uh, the plagues in Egypt and made Moses his mouthpiece given him all kinds of revelations, and Moses is trembling. It's scary. Smoking mountain, stoned to death if you touch it. But the writer's point isn't to depress them by bringing all this up. His point is that now, with this backdrop in mind, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant in view, the Christians to whom he's speaking have something better than that. The Old Testament was good, but what they have now is what all those under the Old Covenant were looking forward to all along. And so we get in verse 40 this idea that God had provided something better for us. The text says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What we're experiencing now is better. The old law was good, but we have something better than even the old law. Even God's direct revelation to Moses. And because of this, this great argument that the, the author makes throughout the book, that brings us to the message of the book of Hebrews. And the ultimate message of the Hebrews author is, do not give up now. Do not quit. And we probably have not suffered like the audience of this book did. I'll grant that. There are some Christians that I have heard of and that I know who have suffered similar kinds of things, who came out of other faiths and from other nations, and their families want to kill them. 
because they've left their previous religion. They want to steal everything they have. They, they want to make them hurt and suffer for their faith. But I would think most of us in this room have not experienced that. But this does apply to us. Even though we don't suffer like they did, we still struggle and suffer. I'm looking around at people who suffer. Because we're a family, we know about each other's struggles. And I know that's true. All of us have our own burdens to bear in this life. Things that break us down, that are hard for us. Things that make us maybe think about quitting sometimes, too. And so even though we we don't suffer like they did necessarily, the message of this book applies to us. But what the author of this book told his audience, and what I believe God would tell us today in our sufferings through the writings of the Hebrews writer, is do not give up. You have something much too good to let go of now. Yeah, things are hard. Things may be hard. Things are hard for a lot of us. But if you truly see what you have and how amazing it is, I think the Hebrews writer would tell us, it should become so overwhelmingly clear that you would be so foolish to let go of it. It would be the the greatest, the height of foolishness to walk away from what you have. And so the admonition of the Hebrews writer is to not give up, not to walk away, not to let go, but on the contrary, to draw nearer. (laughs) And I would submit to you that the very heartbeat of this book is the idea of drawing nearer. Just a few scriptures in this book. You don't have to turn to these places. I'm just going to hit them really quick. But just to show you that this is the pulse of Hebrews. Chapter 4 and verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Chapter 7 and verse 19, we have a better hope through which the writer encourages us there to draw near to God. Chapter 7 and verse 25, we can draw near to God through our eternal great high priest and be saved to the uttermost in our drawing near to God. Chapter 10 and verse 22, we are invited to draw near in full assurance of faith. Chapter 11 and verse 6, those of us who have faith in God are again invited to draw near The amazing thing about that, what makes that so incredible, is that the Old Covenant, on the other hand, encourages people to do anything but draw near. Really, the Old Covenant, in a sense, encouraged its people to stay away. Don't get anywhere close. You don't want to be close to this. Hebrews 12 and verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Who wants to say, oh, well, well, it's right up the mountain. Woo! No, I am backing as far away from that as I can. That was the old covenant. Well, in a way, they could draw near to God. The high priest, once a year, could go into the most holy place. He went in with fear. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but Jewish tradition tells us they'd tie a rope around his leg in case he died. That's not confidence. That's not an invitation to draw near. That's a fear. What we have, the Hebrews writer says, is an invitation to draw near. And he would tell us in chapter 12, we have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to a different mountain. We have come to Mount Zion. Notice verses 22 and 23 of chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then in verse 24, he says, ultimately, you have come to Jesus Christ. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We've come to Jesus. And through him, we have come directly into, he says, the presence of the living God of heaven. Do not let go of that. That's what he's telling them. Sure, cares may come, trials arise, grief ensue, but you cannot let go of what you have in Jesus. You just can't. And he's making the argument, for thousands of years, people have wanted what you have right now. All these people in Hebrews 11, they were looking for a better city. They were looking for these promises that were afar off. They didn't greet them, but they saw them from afar. They wanted them, but they died in faith, not having received them. Guess what we have? Those promises. The Christians this person was writing to had that, and we have it today. It's what people have been wanting for thousands of years. Thousands, millions of people have wanted this, and we have it now. Why would we walk away? Look closer at verses 22 and 23 there. The description of what we've come to. It's the city of God. It's angels in festal gathering. The assembly of the firstborn and ultimately to God. The image here, what is that? It's a throne room. As you walk into the throne room, the angels are in the courts praising. The firstborn are there, God's chosen ones. And then finally you come up to the front and there is the throne on whom sits None other but God himself. And he says, that's where you have come. He doesn't say that's where you're going. I think a lot of times we have that in mind, like we're kind of like the Old Testament people. And in a sense, we are. We haven't received it entirely. But in a sense, we are much closer than they ever were because he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to this place, and to the presence of the living God. That's where we are as Christians. In the presence of God. And and yeah, there's a sense in which we haven't received it fully yet. We do await the full fulfillment of those promises, but we have our foot in the door. We have our foot in the door. Even this morning, we are in the presence of God. You ever think about that? Where two or three are gathered, I'm there with them. God's here. We have when all those heroes of faith were looking toward what they were looking for. We sing the song, He is in our midst, sometimes. We don't sing that because it sounds nice, but it's a lie. We don't sing that just because it's verbiage that kind of describes metaphorically what... It's real. It's real, folks. He is in our midst right now. Why would we ever give that up? And yet, I'd imagine that most of us, at some point or another, have thought about it. 
I've thought about it. Life is hard. Guys, things get tough. That's the reality. You don't need me to tell you that. And so we think about throwing in the towel, maybe. When things get really hard, just giving it up. I mean, I'm someone who struggles mightily with doubt. I have a hard time. I second-guess everything. And there are times where my doubt causes me to think, do I really believe in God? Is this really worth it? Is this really the truth? Maybe that's not your thing that you struggle with. But each of us have things in our lives or things in our personality or things with ourselves, whatever it is that make us struggle. And it may lead us down a path like these Christians we're being led down by their suffering. And we start to question, is this really worth it? Would it be better to just let it go? Well, the message for all of us of this book is clear. We just can't give up. We've been, giving, we've been given something too good to give up on. Are you thinking of quitting your faith even this morning? Maybe someone is. It's a decent-sized group. We're all dealing with things. Maybe you're thinking of it right now, trying to decide if you're going to stick with it or not. Or are you even just, think about this one, are you even just mailing it in? And you've done what businesses these days are calling quiet quitting. Have you heard that term? People stay at a company, and they're still on the, on the payroll. They've still got an email address. They're still sitting in a desk, but they're not, they're not in it. They're, their heart's not there. They're not really doing the work. They're just trying to get the paycheck. They're burned out. They're already done. They're just going through the motions, doing enough to get by. Does that describe you spiritually? We're here to help each other, to stay strong, not to just mail it in and certainly not to quit. We're here to help each other stay strong in the faith and keep the faith. This is too good to mail it in. This is too good to even quiet quit. It's too good to quit. What we have in Jesus is the best there is, that there is and ever will be. So, if you need prayers from someone to help you stay strong, that's what we're here for. We're not here to make some semblance of pretty worship and you can dress up in suits. I know I'm probably in the wrong clothes to preach that this morning, but it's all I had clean after my trip, for the record. <laughs> Also, you know, Paul over here outclassing us all last week with the suit and tie. But, but that's not why we do this. Not to make ourselves feel better about how put together we are. We gather together because we are messed up and we are struggling and we need each other. And that's how God, one way that God has designed to help us keep going. And so maybe the, the old practice of coming forward isn't the most comfortable thing, but talking to each other about what we're struggling with and praying for each other, that, we can't get away from that. Or else we've left what Jesus intended all along for his disciples, to love one another. So if you're struggling, reach out. Be vulnerable. That's what the family of God is supposed to do. And so if you need those prayers, reach out to somebody this morning. It doesn't have to be coming forward. But we all struggle with things. Let's make sure that none of us fall and fail to enter the rest that is promised to us. It's too good to quit on. It's too good to mail it in. Stick with Jesus. He's the best there is.
If you're not a part of the body of Christ, realize that you need to be. I'd love to help you with that too. Point you to what Jesus has offered to you. If there's anything we can do this morning to help you get closer to Jesus and stay strong in the faith, we want to do it. Whether now or even later and as we go through our week. We're a family and that's what we do. If we can help you now though, come while we stand.